Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, oceans, rivers, and lakes are chock full of thousands of underwater plants and algae, collectively described as seaweed. Demand for seaweed, also known as kelp, has exploded as scientists have confirmed its dietary benefits and its potential as a tool in the fight against climate change. There are now seaweed farms from Massachusetts to Alaska, including commercial fishers who have expanded their catch from lobster to seaweed, from food to fuel and everything in between. Is this billion-year-old algae the wave of the future? Later in the show, American women's sports teams, including local franchises, have gained fans and audience, but are still fighting for respect and media coverage. Sports aren't inherently male, but in so many spaces, we've come to accept them as such. Can a new national women's soccer team here in greater Boston help change that? But first, joining me in the studio, John Lovett, owner-operator of Duxbury Sugar Kelp. Hi, John. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm fine. Also with me, Naomi Slip, chief curator at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. Welcome, Naomi. Pleasure to be here. And Scott Lindell, Research Specialist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Pleased to join the conversation. Well, let me start this way. Um, I said, is this the wave of the future? And um, I think seaweed is an example of the future being now, uh, because lots of us don't even understand how much seaweed is already in our lives or that we are consuming it. That's right, Scott. Absolutely. Uh, seaweeds sort of permeate our, our lives uh, in unsuspecting ways, but we're finding now that uh, seaweed really could be and has been a, uh, a great food, a foodstuff um, in Asia, but now more and more North Americans and Europeans are becoming more accustomed to it. Now, uh, just for clarity's sake, because as I've said, there's thousands of, it appears, different kinds of seaweed. Is it all equal? Can each one of the different varieties offer us the same opportunities for healthy food and possibly other kinds of benefits? Well, the, the seaweeds can be broadly broken up into three different types, red, brown, and green. But within those sort of basic scientific classifications, there are tens of thousands of species of which maybe 12 or 14 are grown worldwide, cultivated for 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 food or for food processing kind of byproducts. So we've barely scratched the surface um, in understanding the qualities um, that seaweed might provide to society. Uh, Certainly seaweeds provide wonderful ecosystem services in their natural state that are really important. Um, And news of some of the kelp beds that are dying back in various regions of the world um, don't, are are really scary for the, security of our fisheries and, and, and food supply in some parts of the world. So we've been tracking um, the increase in seaweed farming. 
Um, and turns out we have some in Massachusetts. Maine is a big driver. I guess there's way more than um, we have here. But the, the bottom line is that there are a lot of seaweed farms now, um, as opposed to, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years ago. But I'm going to let you answer that question, John Lovett, because you are a seaweed farmer and the owner-operator of Duxbury Sugar Kelp. How'd you get into it, and um, what excites you about seaweed farming? Yeah, so, um, well, I, I don't know that I'd say that there's a lot. Currently, there are five licensed farms in Massachusetts. Uh, there are many more across, you know, the rest of New England. Uh, but for me, the interest uh, really was born from, from three different things. Uh, first and foremost, my love of the ocean. I wanted to find a way that I could spend more time on the water and to be able to be out on the ocean year round. Uh, the next, which is probably a priority for me, was also the environmental impacts of kelp. Uh, where I am in Massachusetts um, is considered within Cape Cod Bay, and we have the, uh, the almost the entire population of the endangered North Atlantic right whale winters here uh, in, the, in Cape Cod Bay. And I was trying to, and still trying to, uh, determine ways in which kelp can be grown in an eco-friendly manner to coexist with, with marine creatures, specifically the North Atlantic right whale. And the third you know, motivation for me was to be able to apply technology. Um, in my day job, I'm an analytics and, and data uh, uh, person. So I wanted to figure out how I can apply technology to aquaculture and to see if there were methods and means to be able to use data to tell us more about um, really um, sustainable farming practices. Well, here's a Maine farmer describing some of the benefits of kelp to Bloomberg TV. It requires no fresh water, no fertilizers, no feed. And at the same time that it's growing, it's just sucking up nutrients from the water. It's also cleaning the water. It's sucking up carbon. It photosynthesizes like a land plant, but apparently it's like 20 times more efficient. This stuff is amazing. And Naomi, that leads me to you because you got a whole exhibit going on at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, which essentially says this stuff is amazing <laughs> and uh, allows us an opportunity to sort of uh, get into both the history uh, of it, but, but in a very beautiful way. Please ex explain the exhibit. Yeah, so the exhibition is called A Singularly Marine and Fabulous Produce, The Cultures of Seaweed. It's open at the museum through December 3rd. It's over 125 objects, including decorative arts, painting, photography, uh, house insulation, uh, china, um, albums, actual seaweed specimens, um, uh, all the way up to contemporary art. It was a lot of fun to put together. And I think one of the biggest things that I hope people walk away from the exhibition thinking about is that seaweed is a lot more than they may have known. But you also are giving us uh, some samples of what was and how it, it's been around and how people have been using it and thinking about it. And I've, I first heard a story uh, some years ago about Situate's history with Irish mossing, which was gathering of seaweed. Um, and I was like, what was that about? So give us a, just a little brief um, understanding of what was going on with the Irish mossing industry in Situate. 
there are a lot of fun ways that we're thinking about kind of the historical uses and applications of seaweed um, in the 1800s, early 1900s, how that's reflected in fine art and decorative arts and, and what it meant for especially kind of working class communities who really relied on the shoreline commons, the free stuff that you could collect uh, along the rack line on the beaches around them. And for Situate, that particularly um, hinges on the story of a man named Daniel Ward, uh, who was an immigrant from Ireland. And in the 1840s, he sees this red algae um, that he was familiar with and recognizes it as what's colloquially known as Irish moss, which has this really um, uh, it's quite good for carrageenan, which is the extraction that's that's used as a um, an additive in things. So um, making pudding, uh, it's used in the production of beer, <laughs> all sorts of different things. Um, and so the Irish mossing industry springs up in situate between the 1850s and 60s. It's it's really it's heyday. And if you know about the story of Irish immigration to the Boston area, of course, that overlaps with the same decades that you have a huge influx of, of immigrants coming from Ireland. And many of them settle uh, in the situate area because there was this industry that was linked to what they were familiar with back home in Ireland. So it it's not only the story, I think, of how that algae was used, and but also the story of the community's growth, and it feeds into this really interesting history of immigration. Um, so seaweed is really a part of our kind of common shared history here in the region. And so there's there's a lot there. <laughs> Situate's history with seaweed um, and the Irish community there really fascinated me because of a woman who was involved in it, Mim Flynn, and her daughter, Mary Jenkins, told the Patriot Ledger that she began harvesting iris moss on her own when she was only nine years old. And it was amazing for people to see such a young, petite woman who was only, you know, 5'2", pulling these huge yeah. boatfuls of moss and making a living at it. I mean, she was the only woman at the time who had a boat. Most of the other women would go out and be gatherers and gather it off the rocks. Yeah. Now, I was particularly interested in that story because fast forward now to making the, the continuum with seaweed's history to our current uh, and, and our future, women are really uh, into the seaweed farming in ways that are more equal uh, than they are in other areas of farming, let's say. Um, and I found that uh, fascinating. Um, uh, John Lovett, uh, what do you think about that? Many of the people that I've encountered who are actively involved in kelp are women. Uh, the, the woman I get my seed from is fantastic. She's been a great resource. Many farm owner, owners are women. Um, I think it's fantastic. I think it's just a, it just shows that um, you know, we, we can't really think about uh, gender uh, as a means to what someone can do. And, uh, you know, it, I think it's fantastic to see that uh, lots of women are involved with kelp aquaculture. So um, can we take this the increase in seaweed farming here, here, even though you say it's rather small, it's five farms, and give me some kind of uh, frame of reference for, let's say, 10 years ago. Where was seaweed farming um, in our general area, both in Maine and in Massachusetts, um, and for that matter, across the country. And um, Scott, you can weigh in too. The first seaweed farm here in the Northeast started uh, 12 or 13 years ago. Um, it was called Ocean Approved then, and it's still active. Uh, they're, they're, the business name is now um, is, is Atlantic Sea Farms. And uh, John referenced the uh, 
the rise of uh, and involvement of of women in the seaweed industry. That, that's a that's a woman led lend a woman led business, um, and uh, many of the, the the top managers in the company are are women there. Um, the first uh, so and now there are about forty or fifty farms um, in Maine, of which uh, thirty are connected to Atlantic Sea Farms alone. Um, about six or seven years ago, the first seaweed farm was started in Alaska, which has a, a even more extensive coastline and uh, perhaps some say more suitable for kelp growing um, in terms of its geography and, and climate. Uh, Maine has a lot of um, social and political pressures for the use of the coastline, not, not so much in Alaska. Right. So, um... I take that to say that that is we have renewed interest, renewed or revived or expanded interest in seaweed in ways that we did not have, um, and it's growing even faster. How do you how do you uh, assess it, Scott? It's growing at almost double digits, somewhere between eight and ten percent a year. Um, faster, actually, frankly, in in Maine in the last uh, five years, um, and uh, can that. Can that momentum be sustained? Actually, it really needs to be if seaweed is to reach its true promise, which is to replace a lot of the more carbon-intensive foodstuffs that we have from land agriculture. When you when you do the math and you look at the carbon footprint of seaweed farming relative to our traditional agriculture based on fossil fuel fertilizers and pumping water and heavy tractors and machineries and transporting from the Midwest to the coast, um, seaweeds come way, way, almost carbon neutral in terms of their uh, production. So this, this is the wave of the future for producing food. The products that seaweeds can, can generate, including bioplastics and animal feed additives, uh, eventually perhaps biofuels, but we have a way to go before we uh, uh, catch up with the, the basically the uh, uh, subsidies that uh, that fossil fuels have, have enjoyed. Um, and we need to start taxing those kind of carbon uh, intensive industries. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are John Lovett, owner of Duxbury Sugar Kelp, Naomi Slip, chief curator at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and Scott Lindell, research specialist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. We're discussing seaweed in New England and beyond and its capacity to be the wave of the future. Now, I want to get back to... Um, what it offers in terms of how it's gathered, because I'm fascinated uh, for for fishers, fisher people, especially fishing experts. Um, you can be a lobster person, you do that warm weather, and then spend the other half of your time um, going after seaweed. And you have a, a whole year, and it provides an economic stability, I'm imagining, from how I'm reading it, John Lovett, um, that it is a boost for a lot of fisher, fish people who fish. Absolutely. You know, kelp has proven to be a great supplemental income for, like you say, um, a lot of uh, people that make their make their living on the water. And one of the reasons why that's uh, why we're able to do that, uh, kelp is a winter crop. 
And uh, most of us plant in November, uh, October, November, December timeframe. Uh, it's once you actually have your kelp in the water, it's relatively low maintenance. It does its thing, it grows. Uh, as farmers, we need to check on it and make sure that gear is still in the water, that there's no problems with the gear, but it's relatively low intensity in terms of the maintenance that, that's required. Um, most kelp is harvested in April, May timeframes and comes out of the water. And uh, once our gear is out of the water, I'll, I'll speak for my farm specifically, um, I spend the summer uh, doing other things and, and prepping my gear for the next season, but it really lends itself well to being um, you know, a, a supplemental income for folks that are working on the water or want to spend some time out there. Um, while it does require, you know, a boat and some maintenance, you know, if you've already got those things for, you know, from another occupation or another, you know, sort, you know, part of what you do, uh, it lends itself very well to being to being that supplemental income. Now, let's talk about um, what I think many people, if they think about seaweed, already know. I was actually in the Whole Foods last night, and I looked at the seaweed salad, and I thought, wow, you know, we've come a long way when seaweed salad is just right next to the chef salad. And, you know, we don't think anything about it. It's, it's you know, just one of the other varieties of salad um, and is uh, well-received by, I would say, a large part of the population. Now, I happen to be in Whole Foods, but I've seen it in other uh, grocery stores as well. So that right there, um, uh, Scott Lindell, is a, is a movement in America because our changing palates, and that, of course, came along with the Japanese who've been using this for years with nori, but that's, that's impressive, I would say. Yeah, the, the shift from only eating seaweed as a uh, part of your your sushi uh, treat every now and then to uh, uh, you know mo many millennials eat it several times a week and certainly that would be the dietary recommendation of, of most uh, most uh, dietitians is that we all should be eating seafood at least once twice three times a week and perhaps depending less on uh, uh, land-based animal proteins um, yeah seaweeds have a, a variety of nutrients and minerals and uh, anti-inflammatory properties that you just can't get from typical land plants. And so many of those with uh, heightened dietary concerns are integrating seaweeds into their diets more. And in response, um, the very clever food processing companies are finding ways to uh, integrate seaweed, kelp in particular, into products that uh, Americans are familiar with burgers say there are kelp burgers out there that uh, which are are vegan and uh, are some of the best uh, vegeta vegetarian burgers i've ever had meaning they're tasty meaning they're tasty yeah they don't they i mean cuz that's the not key like cardboard yeah that's <laughs> yeah <something>. right <laughs> yeah. right and, and uh, you know th th fermented products uh, atlantic sea farms produces a, a range of fermented products which are really good for the gut um, frozen cubes of kelp that can be integrated into your morning smoothie uh, pickles. There's a lot of pickled products out there that are that are that are integrating with kelp too. Well, you hit on one thing because there is a, a huge uh, trend and embrace of fermented and sour foods. So if you're you know having uh, those kinds of, of of a range of possibilities with a, fer a new fermented food or even an old one that is now fermented, I mean that is very popular across, I would say, most recipes 
Um, you, you just find that everywhere, and people are responding to it. It's a big deal. Here's a chef from the Boston's North Coast Seafoods explaining and underscoring what you said, Scott, about the nutritional value of seaweed. Kelp is known as the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. It's absolutely packed with vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants and omega-3 fatty acids. And here's a fun fact. Kelp has more calcium per ounce than milk. That's surely superfood status. Which brings me to another question. Um, Kelp is a kind of seaweed. Is it a special kind? I mean, why... How does it stand out from other plants that are also collectively known as seaweed? And so I guess, John, you need to explain why you are particularly harvesting sugar kelp, because is that even more different? Like, is there kelp and then there's sugar kelp? Yeah, sugar kelp is, is, a, is a variety of kelp. Uh, Saccharina latissima is the, is the Latin name for it. And um, one of the, as a farmer, one of the one of the requirements uh, placed uh, on on me and other farmers uh, by the Division of Marine Fisheries is that it needs to be the kelp that you grow needs to be endemic to local waters, and it happens that sugar kelp is uh, endemic to Massachusetts. So you know, particularly you know, that's one of the reasons. I had a couple of varieties that I that I could have grown, but it's the most readily available. It grows well. Uh, it's easy to harvest, and and as Scott mentioned, you know, it's 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 tasty. You know, I I, I too uh, you know, I try to incorporate kelp into into my meal plan every week, and uh, you know, pickle my own kelp. I make uh, what I call sriracha stipes, uh, which are the the stipe is a part of the uh, the the kelp frond that holds onto. Or, you know, it's connected to the holdfast. Um, and, you know, there's lots of good uses for it. Um, sugar kelp is what's accessible to me and, and what uh, most uh, nurseries are, are producing at this time. So, Naomi, you're, the purpose of your exhibit is not to identify the different kinds of seaweed, but um, you're representing um, visually many different ways of, of, of looking at the plants. So can you identify <laughs> two or three different kinds just from looking at what you have on your walls from 125 different pieces? Well, yeah, <laughs> sometimes. I, I certainly have benefited from the input of, of Scott and Charlie Arish and, and many others who are, are much more expert in that area than I am. Uh, what I will say has been a lot of fun, uh, again, is, is getting to sort of um, – uh, explore some of this uh, area where where so many people are working so deeply on on seaweed and its future. Um, and, you know, uh, drawing these historical connections. So we're talking about sort of the the seaweed food of today. But, you know, there are two local foodways that are that were reliant on seaweed. The first one, of course, was the clam bake. Now, you didn't eat the seaweed for mm. that, but you had to gather the seaweed. Um, and can you imagine, you know, what a clam bake would be like without the kind of wet uh, steam that comes from the the bladders of, of the rockweed that we use around here? Um, and then the other one, which which is more anecdotal, but I've, I've heard from many individuals that um, their grandparents or, you know, these handed down recipes included seaweed in soups, that that was a really traditional mm. addition. So um, connecting, I think, the, the historical uses and certainly how they're pictured um, to the kind of conversations today has been great fun. <laughs> Whether I can ID all the seaweed in the exhibition, I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be put to the test for that one. <laughs> okay, so um, Scott was identified that he likes kelp burgers, and he swears they're tasty. What specifically kinds of seaweed foods that you know you're eating, Naomi, or have eaten and enjoyed? Just curious. 
Uh, I'm, uh, you mentioned seaweed salad. That's one that I mm -hmm. do really enjoy. Um, there are these little, uh, sort of dried crisp seaweed snacks, um, that come in. I think that's nori. Is that nori? No, no. Well, yeah, the, the seaweed variety, but the come in different mm -hmm. spice flavors now, and you can pick them up mm -hmm. on the grocery store shelf. Those are quite good. Uh, and I've convinced my child to eat those, which I feel like is a win. <laughs> <laughs> um, aside from that, I'm I'm not as much of a sort of uh, seafood uh, or a seaweed food uh, connoisseur as, as my other two panelists here. <laughs> well, I just was curious, and I want to know from you, John, since you farm it, what are you eating? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I, I pickle it and I use that quite frequently. Um, I like to, uh, I, I make a kelp pesto. So I replace uh, basil with oh. kelp. That's actually very delicious. I love putting that on any type of fish or, or any type of food. Um, I Okay. Pause there. So because in a normal pesto, it's um, nuts and it's uh, basil and um, oil. I think I'm missing something. Cheese. So what? So what's the recipe for um, kelp. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same. I just replaced the basil with kelp, with, with fresh kelp. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, and the texture is the same? It's, it's pretty much the same? Absolutely. It tastes delicious. It's got that great umami flavor. Huh. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great. Okay, well, I would try that. Okay, go ahead. I interrupted you. I was just curious about the <laughs> recipe. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of times, so I, I will, I dry uh, my own kelp and then I use it uh, it's actually a great seasoning on top of popcorn. So I'll put it on my popcorn. I put it on a, a pizza as a, as a little seasoning. You know, one of the things that that I believe about kelp is that um, when they talk about, you know, consumption habits of kelp, you know, we, we certainly want more people to eat kelp. But it's not like, I don't believe that kelp is going to be center of plate for most people. It's not going to be a get a big heaping, you know, glob of kelp and start spooning <laughs> it down. Uh, it's going to be more, you know, as, as Scott mentioned, kind of additives, you know, ingredients in, t in foods, uh, flavoring for different foods. You know, the, the crisps that Naomi mentioned, I actually put those on sandwiches. They have a great crunch and they get you all that flavor. But, you know, I see it being very much a supplement rather than the you know, center of plate meal for, for most folks. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with John Lovett, owner of Duxbury Sugar Kelp, Naomi Slip, chief curator at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and Scott Lindell, research specialist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. We're talking about all things seaweed. Now, back to you, Scott. Um, you mentioned in passing that maybe um, this is something uh, seaweed could become a biofuel, but... Um, this, there's very serious interest in this and movement on it. Um, talk about it. Yeah, my, my first serious uh, funding source was the Department of Energy, and they were looking at uh, um, something to replace the bioethanol we get from corn um, or something like that that would be more environmentally friendly, more climate friendly. Um, and, I, and kelp ticks all the boxes. But there's such a um, you know such a historic uh, infrastructure placement and political will all facing um, the, uh, the the corn ethanol industry and supporting it. Um, it's very hard to see how that will be supplanted anytime soon. So in the mm. meantime, um, we have been focusing and our cooperators, both commercial and academic, on many of the intermediate markets right now. The, the highest and best use of kelp um, 
in terms of profitability as well, is food, human food, um, for all the good reasons we've just we've just mentioned. But there are markets developing uh, as the as the as the expansion of kelp farming. Uh, more than meets our capacity to eat them as North Americans, um, we need to find other markets. And so markets for animal feeds, for bioplastics, uh, for uh, different ranges of um, cosmetics and uh, uh, other fractions that can be biorefined from kelp. These will be intermediate steps before kelp goes to probably its uh, low cost use long in the future, maybe a decade from now as a biofuel. Now I have a scientific question for you, Scott, um, and that is we're hearing so much about the bleaching of coral. You know, all these ecosystems uh, below the water are so delicate and fragile and they feed on each other, um, not to make too much, a fine a point. So even though there's all thousands and thousands of, of, of varieties of seafood and kelp right now is the, is the one that's... Uh, being used most, I think I, I'm clear about what you're saying, or at least we're tapping into that one the most. What impact does this um, really tragic thing happening with a lot of coral have on, or could have on, um, the growth of the seaweed? Any? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the, let's look at the uh, the abiotic or physical constraints that corals are facing right now. It's usually high temperature and sometimes uh, raising CO2 or acidity in the water. Um, these are things that uh, kelp can also struggle with, but less so with the, the acidity. Actually, kelp prefer high CO2 in the water. Um, so uh, there, there could be strategies uh, around coral reefs to not use kelp because kelp prefer cooler waters. But other seaweeds could potentially be grown around uh, reefs that would help at least buffer the water and keep the, the CO2 at a relatively low level. Um, this is a strategy that some some have proposed here in the more northern latitudes around shellfish farms where the acidity is also affecting the growth of shells. But um, yeah, the, the, the answers for protecting coral reefs from high temperatures are really, we just have to cut emissions. Hmm. Okay. So it, it won't make the situation worse necessarily and could possibly be helpful in some some areas. Some areas, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What's your projection? I don't know, 10 years from now, we're having this conversation. Is everybody so ho-hum about it because, you know, kelp's everywhere, seaweed's everywhere, and, you know, we're driving around on biofuel from kelp. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, there are a lot of people like myself um, uh, who are racing as fast as we can to make this to help this transition to a lower carbon um, based economy, a circular economy. We really need to find ways that uh, that, that take waste out of our 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 vocabulary and our our actions. And I think kelp um, are a great way to recycle the CO2s that, that uh, we're emitting, uh, potentially sequester it into building materials, things that will last for a century or more, um, take that CO2 out of the water and uh, uh, find ways to um, lower our, our, our carbon emissions and carbon sequest and exactly implement carbon sequestration. 
but I think we're going to see um, a sea change, if you will, as kelp farms and seaweed farms begin to grow. There will be at some point, and we're beginning to see it already a little bit in Maine, some pushback about the existing uses in the ocean. Um, and most of the challenges are not technological anymore with kelp. They're social and political. How do we share the ocean with fishermen and boaters and all the other people who use the ocean? How do farmers get a, a fair toehold, if you will, um, and not uh, uh, impact the existing uses? That's a political battle that's still being worked out. Naomi, what's your 10-year prediction? Well, uh, I mean, I'm optimistic that seaweed uh, and seaweed aquaculture also we will, you know, become marshaled as as one of the prime tools in increasing coastal biodiversity and in fighting um, the, you know, um, increasing kind of nitrogen-rich waters that we see in our area. Um, I think that's another key contribution that seaweed and seaweed farming can make. Um, and I think it's one that particularly in Massachusetts, where we're so reliant on our coasts and we're seeing such dramatic changes happening in, you know, only a generation to these really fragile ecosystems. I think the possibilities of uh, utilizing seaweed as a kind of coastal um, management tool uh, is one that holds great promise. And, and so I think there are these, these sort of bigger questions, right? These larger kind of um, uh, global questions and then and some, some really local ones that, that maybe seaweed can help us um, problem solve around. And John. Yeah, sim similarly, um, I, I anticipate that, you know, go looking forward, um, really aquaculture in general, kelp specifically, um, really sustainable practices in farming and the ways that we do things, um, seeing that the infrastructure to support that, the processing, the growing, the uh, getting it to market, all of those things done in a very sustainable way that promotes not only getting kelp into our diets and making it something that uh, people benefit from as one of those superfoods that we talked about earlier, but also to be able to uh, employ people working, you know, working waterfronts, making sure that people have gainful employment uh, through this, but doing so in, a, in an environmentally sustainable way that's, that's really helping the planet versus taking away from it. Okay. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. Thank, thank you. John Lovett is the owner-operator of Duxbury Sugar Kelp. Naomi Slip is the chief curator at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. And Scott Lindell is the research specialist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Coming up, millions of sports fans are drawn to the richly funded and widely marketed American men's professional sports teams, while women's professional sports teams, hampered by less time, money, and media attention, struggle to draw big audiences and financial support. Could a new Boston national women's soccer team be a game changer? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.